found guilty of murder in Texas May 1998 and received the death penalty. Now, as his execution approaches, there are many doubts about this guilt. This is the case of Rodney Reed. Hi, I'm your host Cambo. Grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. This is True Crime Island, another true crime podcast. Islanders, tonight is a bit of a different episode. I was watching Stephanie Harlow's YouTube channel the other night and she did a case about a guy on death row that's soon to be executed, but there are extreme doubts about his guilt. Now, a few podcasters are rushing out episodes to try and spread the word so maybe he can get a stay of execution so at least a new trial can be run and all the new evidence looked at. I've also decided to run this episode earlier than normal as this guy is due to be executed on the 20th of November. So there's only a few days to go. The guy I'm talking about is Rodney Reed. He was convicted of the murder of Stacey Stites in May 1998 and sentenced to death. Now, before I start, there's two opposing views on this case. One, that he's guilty and the state has the right man and the other that he's innocent and there's been a major miscarriage of justice. I want to help raise awareness in this case because we aren't talking about someone who's going to spend his life in prison who may or may not be innocent. He's on death row. Actually, he's on death watch at the moment. As I said before, he's scheduled to be executed on the 20th of November this year. Now, if there is any doubt about his guilt, he should at least be spared from execution. Also, this case is extremely complex. I can't say for sure from what I've researched this week if he is guilty or not, but what I can say before they execute him, at least give him a new trial. So let's get a little bit of background into this case. Now, because I've only had a couple of days to prepare this, I'll be reading quite a bit of this straight from the Court of Court of Criminals Appeal December 17, 2008, which has a very good overview of of what happened and what the police think that happened. Then I'll go into a few other things after that. So Stacy and her mother, Carol Stites, moved to Bastrop from Smithville in 1995 after Stacy graduated from high school. Also briefly working for a car dealership in Bastrop, Stacy began working at Bastrop HEB, a grocery store, as a cashier and bagger in October 1995. In January 1996, Stacy and her mother moved to a nearby town of Giddings so that Stacy could be with her fiancé, Jimmy Fennell. Fennell, who had completed the police academy at the Capital Area Planning Council Organisation, or CAPO, in October 1995, was hired as a patrol officer with the Giddings Police Department in December. With a long-term interest in law enforcement, Fennell had previously been employed by the Bastrop County Sheriff's Office as a jailer. 
Carol described Stacey and Fennell as inseparable since they began dating a few weeks after meeting at the Smithfield Jamboree in May 1995. By late December 1995, the two were engaged. Stacey, Carol and Fennell moved into an apartment complex just outside Giddings. Stacey and Fennell shared an apartment on the second floor of the apartment building and Carol lived in a separate one-bedroom apartment downstairs. With a big church wedding planned for May 11, 1996, Stacey transferred into the produce department at HEB to earn more money. The new assignment required her to report to work at 3.30am to stock produce for the day. Normally, she would wake up between 2.45 and 2.50am and take anywhere from 5 to 20 minutes getting ready to leave for work. She would dress in her HEB uniform, which consisted of blue pants and a red shirt with an HEB insignia on the front. Typically, she would wear a white t-shirt and carry the red shirt with her on the way out the door, along with a plastic cup of juice or water. Although Stacy had access to Carol's white or grey Ford Tempo, she routinely drove Fennel's red Chevy S10 extended cab truck to work. Carol's car was unreliable and had broken down on the road in the past. When commuting to work, Stacy would take Highway 290 to Highway 21, then loop 150 Chestnut Street over the railway tracks into Bastrop. The drive took approximately 25 to 30 minutes. When she finished a shift in the early afternoon, Stacy would usually go to Carol's apartment, take a nap, and then get up and prepare things with Carol for the upcoming wedding. After leaving for work April 22, 1996, the day before she died, Stacy arrived at Carol's apartment early in the afternoon. She ate lunch and took a nap. Fennel came home from work a few hours later, and having borrowed Carol's Ford Tempo, Fennel returned Carol's extra set of car keys to Carol by placing them on a shelf in her apartment. Carol designated the extra set as Stacy's set. The three then briefly talked about their schedules for the following day. Stacy was scheduled to be at work at 3.30am and Fennel was not scheduled to work. Fennel and Stacy had planned to go to the insurance agent and then pick out flowers for the wedding ceremony after Stacy got off work. When Fennel suggested driving Stacy to work, Carol offered to drive him to Bastrop to meet Stacy so that Fennel could sleep in. However, Fennel declined Carol's offer, stating that he would drive Stacy to work. Fennel then left in his truck to coach a Little League baseball team with his friend and co-worker, Officer David Hall. He returned between 8 and 8.30pm. Stacy met Fennel outside of Carol's apartment and according to Carol, the two then ran upstairs laughing as hard as they could. When Fennel and Stacy returned to their apartment, they showered together. Although Stacy was taking birth control pills, the two did not have sexual intercourse because at this point in her prescription cycle, the vitamin pills she was taking allowed for greater possibility of pregnancy. The two also discussed their plans for the next day for a second time. Abandoning their earlier plan, they agreed that Stacy would take Fennel's truck to work and that Fennel would arrange to have Carol take him to meet Stacy in Bastrop when she got off work. Stacy then went to sleep at 9pm while Fennel stayed up and watched the news. The next morning, April 23rd, Andrew Cadenas, Stacy's co-worker in the produce department, arrived at the Bastrop HEB around 3.30am and waited for Stacy in the parking lot. Cardenas would usually wait in his car for Stacy to arrive so that they could keep an eye on each other to make sure nobody was around and walk inside the store together. Cardenas regarded Stacy as a punctual employee and when she failed to show up for work, he became concerned. 
Cardenas eventually went into work to start his shift, but he kept an eye out for Stacey. At 5.30am, while on routine patrol, Officer Paul Alexander with the Bastrop Sheriff's Department observed Fennell's truck parked in the Bastrop High School parking lot. Mindful that the truck had not been parked there during his previous patrol of the area and that there were no other vehicles in the lot, Officer Alexander contacted the dispatcher and requested a stolen vehicle check. The dispatcher reported that the vehicle was registered to an individual with the last name Fennell. Although Officer Alexander knew Jimmy Fennell, he did not know him well and it did not enter his mind that the truck belonged to Jimmy Fennell. When Officer Alexander looked inside the cab with his flashlight, he noticed that the driver's seat was reclined and that there were books and clothing on the seats. Outside the driver's side door on the ground, Officer Alexander observed a small piece of a broken belt with a buckle. After noting that there was no shattered glass, that the ignition was intact and that the driver's side door was locked, Officer Alexander concluded that nothing was out of order and returned to his patrol duties. Still looking out for Stacy to arrive at work, Cadenas finally decided to call Carol between 6.30 and 7am. When Cadenas told Carol that Stacy failed to show up for work, Carol became upset and immediately yelled out for Fennel. Cardenas then went back to work and Carol called Fennel on the phone, waking him up. Frantic, Carol told Fennel that HEB called and told her that Stacy did not show up for work. Fennel rushed down the stairs, putting on a shirt on the way down. He told Carol to call authorities and tell, tell them that he and Carol were looking for Stacy. Carol had both sets of keys to her car, so Fennel took Stacy's set and drove to Bastrop in Carol's tempo to look for Stacy. He drove to the HEB and then returned to Carol's apartment. He did not see any sign of Stacy or the truck. Meanwhile, officers with the Bastrop Police Department were looking for Stacy and David Board, an investigator with the department, called Carol to ensure her that they were doing everything possible to locate Stacy. At approximately 9am, the authorities received the missing persons report. Ed Samala, an investigator with the Bastrop Police Department, was dispatched to the Bastrop High School parking lot. Upon arrival, investigator Samala notified other law enforcement officers, including Board, of the truck's location and requested assistance. While numerous investigators from the Bastrop Police and Sheriff's Department were photographing the truck and other pieces of evidence, Officer Alexander was called back into work to explain why he ran the license plate on the truck earlier that morning and to write a report. The truck was later taken to a local tow shop and held until it could be transported to Austin so that members of the Texas Department of Public Safety Crime Laboratory, DPS Crime Lab, could process it for evidence. While the truck was at the tow shop in Bastrop, authorities requested Fennel's presence to identify items found in and outside of the truck. Fennel was specifically instructed not to touch anything and to peer into the cab and identify anything that was not supposed to be in the vehicle. Fennel observed several things in the truck that were out of ordinary. First, one of the tennis shoes that Stacy normally wore to work was on the floorboard of the passenger side of the truck. Second, there was a foamy substance resembling saliva on the carpet covering the hump over the truck's transmission. Third, there were broken pieces of green plastic in the console from the type of cup that Stacy usually took with her in the truck. Fourth, the driver's seat was laid back at a 45 degree angle. Fifth, the driver's seatbelt was still buckled. And sixth, there was a large smudge on the back window of the passenger's side. 
Fennell also identified several items found outside the truck. First, there were carbon copies of checks from his checkbook, and second, regarding the piece of belt with the buckle attached. Fennell told investigators that it was part of the belt that Stacey normally wore to work. After this, Fennell returned to his apartment complex in Giddings. When the truck was delivered to the DPS garage in Austin, a crime scene team began to process it for evidence. The team stopped their initial overview of the truck when Stacy's body was discovered by Kenneth Osborne shortly before 3pm on Blue Bonnet Drive, located off FM 1141. Osborne, a real estate appraiser, was early for a three o'clock appointment and decided to drive on Blue Bonnet Drive to pick some flowers for his wife. He spotted Stacy's body among some thorny brush in a ditch on the side of the road. When Osborne approached Stacy's body, he realised she was dead. He got back into his car, stopped at a house nearby, called the police and then went back to Blue Bonnet Road to wait for the police. John Barton, an investigator with the Bastrop County Sheriff's Department, was one of the first law enforcement officers to, re- to arrive at the scene. He covered Stacy's body with a green blanket to prevent the media circling above in a helicopter from taking photographs. He also closed off the crime scene and began to photograph the area and Stacy's body. Shortly thereafter, Bastrop authorities, joined by Texas Ranger L.T. Wardlow, who became the designated lead investigator assigned to work with both the Bastrop Police and Sheriff's Department, decided to call in DPS Crime Lab members to process the scene. The DPS Crime Scene team arrived in Bastrop from Austin at approximately 5.15pm. Karen Blakely, who specialised in DNA and serology, was designated the team leader by her co-worker, Wilson Young. Other members of the team, led, like, led by Blakely, included a trace analyst, a photographer, a latent print examiner, and a trainee in serology and DNA. Detailing the condition of Stacy's body, Blakely noted that Stacy was missing a shoe and that her white sock was clean indicating that she had not likely walked on an outside surface. An HEB name tag with the name Stacy written on it was found in the crook of Stacy's leg, and a white t-shirt which Fennel later identified as belonging to him was strewn over some bush near Stacy's body. Stacy was clothed in a black bra and a pair of blue pants with a broken zipper. Her visible green underwear was wet in the crotch and bunched around her hips. Viewing this as indicative of sexual assault, Blakely tested for the presence of semen and the initial tested yielded a positive result. Blakely then collected additional swab samples from Stacy's vagina and breasts. Because rigor mortis had set in, Blakely could not determine if Stacy had been anally sodomized. She was already very stiff and in order for me to try to get the anal area, I could possibly cause injury or further damage and make it look like she'd suffered something that she didn't. According to Blakely, it looked like a great force had been applied to Stacy's neck, because it was like an indentation but red, like it had cut into her skin. Blakely concluded that the injury was caused by a piece of webbed belt that was located near Stacy's body on the side of the dirt road, because it matched the pattern that was on Stacy's neck. And when the piece of belt with a buckle found near Fennel's truck at the high school was brought to the scene, Blakely compared the two and concluded that they matched. Another criminalist on the team designated to search for trace evidence concurred with Blakely's determination, concluding that the pieces matched. Going a step further, he also concluded that the belt had been torn, not cut. 
Documenting other injuries to Stacey's body, Blakely observed that there were scratches on her abdomen and arms, a burn from a cigarette on her arm, and shallow wounds on her wrist and back that looked like they were caused by fire ant bites. Blakely also documented a large amount of mucus that ran from Stacey's nose, down the side of her face, and into her hair. Terry Sandiford, the latent fingerprint examiner, collected two bush beer cans that were located across the road from where Stacey's body was discovered. When she processed the cans for fingerprints at the lab, she, fe- she discovered no suitable fingerprints to analyse. After processing the scene, Blakely returned to the lab that evening around 11pm so that she could look at the substance on the vaginal swabs under a microscope. She discovered intact sperm, sperm heads with the tails still attached, that in her opinion indicated that sexual activity was recent. Her conclusion was based on a published study finding that 26 hours is about the outside length of time that tails will remain on a sperm head inside the vaginal tract of a female. She immediately reported her findings to Ranger Wardlow. Ranger Wardlow viewed the presence of semen as a smoking gun, surmising that the evidence of sexual assault gave the perpetrator a motive to kill. Ranger Wardlow theorised that identifying the man who left the semen would lead to the discovery of Stacey's killer. Dr. Robert Bayardo, the Travis County Medical Examiner, conducted an autopsy on Stacey's body the following afternoon at 1.50. He estimated that Stacey died on the 23rd of April at 3am, give or take a few hours, based on changes that occur in the body after death. Dr. Bayardo noticed that Stacey had pre- and post-mortem injuries. He differentiated between the two based on the absence of bleeding. Once the heart stops beating, there's no more bleeding and no more bruising. The burn, which Blakely believed was caused by a cigarette, occurred after Stacy died, as did several scratches. In Bayardo's opinion, although Stacy's skull showed no outward signs of injury, when Dr. Bayardo looked inside the skull, he documented multiple bruises that had the appearance of injury sustained by being struck on the head with the finger knuckles with a closed hand. Comparing the injury pattern on Stacy's neck with the pieces of webbed belt collected by authorities, Dr. Bayardo concluded that the belt was the murder weapon and that Stacy died as a result of asphyxiation caused by strangulation. He estimated that asphyxiation takes approximately three to four minutes and that a person becomes unconscious within one to two minutes. Because of evidence indicating sexual assault, Dr. Bayardo took vaginal swabs. Viewing the swabs under a microscope, he observed the presence of sperm with both heads and tails. This, according to Dr. Bayardo, indicated that the sperm had been introduced into Stacy's vagina quite recently. Continuing the sexual assault exam, Dr. Bayardo took rectal swabs. Viewed under a microscope, he identified several sperm heads without any visible tails, which led him to report the result of the test as negative. Sperm, according to Dr. Bayardo, breaks down much faster in the rectum than it does in the vagina because of the presence of other bacteria in the rectum. When conducting a visual exam of Stacy's rectal area, Dr. Bayardo noticed that her anus was dilated and that there were some superficial lacerations on the posterior margin. In his opinion, this was consistent with penile penetration, even though he did not entirely rule out the possibility that the presence of sperm in the anus was the result of seepage from the vagina. 
Utilising his education and experience about determining whether a particular injury occurred before or after death, Dr. Bayardo concluded that Stacy sustained the injury to her anus at or around the time of her death and that the penetration was therefore not consensual. So, that was a lot. Sorry about that. I read it out reasonably quick, but that's basically from the appeal document. So that's what they reckon went on. So how did Rodney Reed, born December 22nd, 1967 in Texas, get caught up in all of this? Well, Reed became a suspect in Stites' murder after he was arrested for kidnapping, beating, and attempting to rape and murder another 19-year-old woman, Linda Schluter. Schluter was abducted, abducted by Reed approximately six months after Stites' murder, near both the route Stites typically took to work and the time she disappeared, 3 a.m. Moreover, Reed was regularly seen in this area by Bastrop police officers in the early morning hours, and his home was close to where both Stites and Schluter's vehicles were abandoned. Further, Reed's height is six foot two, aligned with the angle of the driver's seat in Fennel's truck. Now, when he was first interviewed over the death of Stacy, he told police he didn't know her and had never had any sexual relationship with her. Later, he would change his story to say he was in fact having a sexual relationship with her and had sex with her just two days before she was murdered. Now, he is a black man, and back in the day in Texas, it was not the thing to have a mixed-race relationship. Not that it didn't happen, it was not really the thing to do. So he says that when he started a relationship with Stacy Stites, a white woman, they kept it very secret. Now, guilters will say that that's an easy out to say there was a sexual secret relationship to explain the presence of his sperm from the swabs. And true, at the trial, there was no real unbiased witnesses to this relationship. But now it has been found that there were many unbiased witnesses that Reed's defence contacted at the time who said Stacey had told them about her affair. However, these witnesses all went quiet after initially being contacted. When the defence wanted to formally interview them, they all seemed to back out. Now, maybe pressure or intimidation from police, who knows? But now it looks like some of them are willing to back up Reed's story that he was in a consenting sexual relationship with Stacey. Now, Reed pleaded not guilty in his trial, but he would ultimately be convicted of the murder of Stacey Stites, but he's always maintained his innocence. Now, apparently there's been nine appeals and he's lost every one of them on all certain different things now there are a few strange things that surround this case now this is one thing i'll just get this out of the way straight away there were two deaths of two police officers investing investigating the case one was officially investigating the case and the other unofficially Giddings policeman Joe Bryant was doing his own unauthorized investigation of Jimmy Fennell now that of course is the fiance of Stacy, less than six months after Stacy died, he was shot by a migrant worker from Mexico. The second cop that died was Ed Samello. Four months later, he was found dead from a self-inflicted gunshot wound. His brother said he was clean, neat and tidy person, but his room was all messed up and his computer and hard drives were missing. He was shot with his left hand into the left side of his head and blew out his right ear. The gun was found lying next to his right foot. 
His brother said that he had shakes in his left hand and he was a right-handed person, so he couldn't have shot himself the way he was found. Look, I really don't know about these cops being uh, killed for looking at Fennel, who was a cop as a suspect. Uh, Two cops being killed could be a coincidence, and I couldn't find any real link to this being otherwise. But it is out there in the forum, so it is worth a mention. Now, of course, Fennel was first investigated by police, as it's always the closest one, the spouse, the boyfriend or whatever, who they reckon do it. So it was six months they were looking at him before they looked at Reed. Now, it has come, it, it's come to light that Fennel told another cop at some stage that he'd strangle Stacy if she cheated on him. Also strange is that Fennel's house was not searched and he sold the, stru- the truck straight after it was released from initially the initial forensic examination. Look, I don't know if you can read much into that because you can imagine not wanting to keep the truck your fiancé was killed in or, or used when she was killed. So this really doesn't show he was guilty. Look, if he had it crushed or burnt, maybe, but apparently was just sold intact. Also against Fennel as a suspect is that he had a history of sexual assault and violence against women. After Stacy's death, he did 10 years for kidnapping and improper sexual activity with a person in his custody. And that 10 years was after doing a plea deal. So he arrested someone off the street. He raped them and uh, told them that if he, they said anything, uh, he'd kill them. So mm, he got busted for that. So Fennel and Reed are the main suspects. And look, neither of them are saints by any stretch of the imagination. Now, I want to read this from court records. Reed became a suspect in Stites' murder after he was arrested for kidnapping, beating, and attempting to rape and murder another 19-year-old woman. This was Linda Schluter, which I talked about before. Schluter was abducted by Reed approximately six months after Stites' murder. Near the route, Stites typically typically took to work and the same time she disappeared, which was 3 a.m. Moreover, Reed was regularly seen in the area by Bastrop police officers in the early morning hours. I've said this before, but I'll just read through. And the and his home was close to where both Stites and Schluter's vehicles were abandoned. Of course, Reed's height was six foot two, and when you look at the way the seat was put back, he it looks like that's how he could easily sit in it. Now Given the similarities between these crimes, law enforcement inquired with DPS if they had Reed's DNA profile on fire. They did because, get this, Reed had raped his intellectually disabled girlfriend, Caroline Rivers. Reed's DNA profile was compared with the foreign DNA inside and on Stites' body. The two were consistent. Reed was then questioned and he denied knowing Stites. Additional biological samples were obtained from Reed via a search warrant. More DNA testing was performed by DPS and by a private laboratory retained by the state. The results were conclusive. Reed could not be excluded as a foreign DNA contributor, but 99% of the world's population could be, and only one person in 24 to 130 billion people would have the same foreign DNA profile. But to be sure, samples were taken from Reed's father and three of his brothers, and they were ruled out as contributors too. Further, trial counsel cast suspicion on David Lawhon, 
a Bastrop resident who murdered another woman, Mary Ann Alt, two weeks after Stite's death. They called several witnesses that testified about a connection between Stites and Lohan, including one who said he confessed to killing Stites. The rape and murder of Stites was hardly Reed's first or last foray against women. First was Connie York, a 19-year-old who'd come home late one evening after swimming with friends. York was grabbed from behind and told, don't scream or I'll hurt you. When York did not listen, she was repeatedly struck, dragged to her bedroom and raped multiple times. Reed was interviewed and while he admitted that he knew York from high school, he denied raping her. When confronted with a search warrant for biological samples, Reed had an about face. He said, yeah, I had sex with her. She wanted it. The case went to trial for four, uh, four years later and Reed was acquitted. Next was A.W., a 12-year-old girl who was home alone, having fallen asleep on a couch after watching TV. A.W. awoke when someone began pushing her face into the couch and had blindfolded and gagged her. She was repeatedly hit in the head, called vulgar names and orally, vaginally and anally raped. The foreign DNA from A.W.'s rape kit was compared to Reed's. Reed was not excluded and only 1 in 5.5 billion people would have the same foreign DNA profile from AW's rape kit. Then came Lucy Iper, who Reed had met in high school and whom Reed began to date after a graduation. Iper had two children with Reed. Throughout their relationship, Reed physically abused her, including while she was pregnant, and raped her all the time, including one time in front of their two children. Afterwards, Reed began dating Caroline Rivers, the intellectually disabled woman. Rivers' caseworker noticed bruises on her body, and when asked about them, Rivers admitted that Reed would hurt her if she would not have sex with him. Later, her caseworker noticed that Rivers was walking oddly and sat down gingerly. Rivers admitted that Reed had, the prior evening, hit her, called her vulgar names, and only raped her. The samples from Rivers' rape kit provided the link to Stite's murder. Shortly thereafter, and about six months before Stites' murder, Reed raped Vivian Harbottle underneath a train trestle as she was walking home. When she pleaded for her life for the sake of her children, Reed laughed at her. The foreign DNA from Harbottle's rape kit was compared to Reed. He could not be excluded, and only one person in 5.5 billion would be expected to have the same foreign DNA profile. Finally, and about six months after Stites' murder, Reed convinced 19-year-old Linda Schluter to give him a ride home at about 3.30am. Reed led her to a remote area and then attacked her. After a prolonged struggle, Schluter asked Reed what he wanted and Reed responded, I want a blowjob. When Schluter told Reed that you'll have to kill me before you get anything, Reed stated, I guess I'll have to kill you then. Before Schluter could be raped, a car drove by and Reed fled. So definitely Reed looks like he has a temperament to do what he was convicted for, but still, did he have the opportunity? Well, three forensic scientists looked at the original evidence. They found the evidence was medically and scientifically impossible. They say she died long before the state's case says she did. They say she may have been killed around 9 to 10 hours earlier. This is based on looking at the original crime scene video, which showed rigor mortis in the body of Stacy and the markings from post-mortem lividity, indicating Stacy had been slumped over face first for many hours before being dumped on her back in the bush. 
So this basically throws all the timelines of the prosecution way out. And if she was killed at that time, then Fennell says he was with her at home during this time. Also, this Dr. Bayardo character who did the initial autopsy, he was found to be doing autopsies all over the USA for payments. Now, what can be implied here is that he was able to be sort of like the go-to man if you needed the autopsy results to go a certain way. And he had the motivation to do the right thing by police so to keep being used by them and in turn, of course, make more money. Funny how the other forensic scientists now agree that she died many hours before Bayado's surmise when she was supposed to be with her fiancé, Fennell. Did he make the time of death between 3am and 5am to fit the police narrative? Just another doubt in the evidence used to convict Reed. Also, one jury member said that if she knew what she does now, her decision may be different. Islanders, I could go on a lot longer in this case, but time is of the essence. And as I said at the start of the show, I have no leaning whether Reed is guilty or not. If Fennel, her fiancé, had something to do with it, or if there was a third suspect who did do it. All I can see is there looks to be doubt. And in death penalty cases, you can have absolutely no doubt. That is one of the problems of the death penalty. You can't say sorry years later if there is a wrongful conviction. There is less than a week before Reed is due to be executed. If you want to find out how you can help, go to freerodneyreed.com for more information. Like I said, he's no saint, but there is doubt over his guilt for which he's been sentenced to die. Now, in regards to those alleged rapes, He was acquitted on the one he went to court over and I don't think he was ever charged on the other allegations as, of course, he'd been sentenced to death for murder. So those out there saying he should die anyway, well, charge him with those other offences and drag him into court over it. One other thing, the Innocence Project, and you can go to their website and search for the Rodney Reed case, they're all over this, so there must be some legitimacy to the fact that Rodney Reed has had a miscarriage of justice. So Islanders, that's it for this little bit of a different show. There is more to it. There is a lot more to it, but time is running out, so I could only bring you the basics. Please, I'm not sticking up for a rapist. Bring him to trial, like I said, on those allegations, but he has been sentenced to death for something that he may or may not have done, and at least he deserves a new trial to test the new evidence. To me, there looks like some doubt over the original trial and his conviction. But if you want a bit more information, check out not only Stephanie Harlow's YouTube channel, but also California Dreaming Podcast by my friend Rosie, who has an in-depth four-parter on the case. So I'm sure I haven't listened to it yet, but I'm sure she gets down to a bit more detail. I won't do the usual shout-outs at the end of the show this week, but I will say... There will be some real video coming to True Crime Island YouTube channel. Yes, I've bought a camera, I've bought some lights, and I've been busy setting up a studio in my room to bring you more from the island. So subscribe to the channel, grab your beer, and get in that deck chair. So signing off for this week, and as I always say, don't forget to delete your browser history. Good night, and boom fuck a